0: Lord, we do stand amazed at your grace as this just poured out on us in so many different ways. and The glory of discovering that you've washed our stains. We've stained our life. We mess it up. We do stupid things. And you came so that we could be cleaned and healed and forgiven. And so, Lord, we're amazed at who you are. But we thank you for who we are because of who you are, as we've associated with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're endeavoring on a new study in the book of First Corinthians. First Corinthians is an awesome book of the Bible, a very practical book about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of the church, what the church is ultimately a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a city called Corinth. Corinth was a city in Greece, there on the Isthmus, in the main southern part of Greece. And it was an important city because it had ports on both sides of the Isthmus. It was close to Athens, but was a very uh, important shipping place. It sat up a couple thousand feet above sea level, so it had a great view and was an important part of that part of the world in those days, Corinth was, but it also was being very successful. The people there were kind of a mess. The, the term Corinthian became known for someone who's really immoral, someone who's real sleazy. They would call them a Corinthian. Corinthian girls didn't have the greatest reputation. And you wonder how that would happen. Well, All you have to do is look at what happens anywhere where people are really well-off, where people become materially blessed. We often talk about the test that comes from poverty, and certainly poverty, I've been there, it, it is a test, but a much more difficult test is the test of success. When you have a lot, when you have more than you need, what will you do with it? How will you spend it? And for most of us, we get a little extra money in our pocket. It's going to make trouble for us. And that was certainly true in those days too in Corinth because they were so wealthy. They looked down their nose at the rest of the world. They spent money kind of indiscriminately and luxuriously. And as a result, they became Corrupted And so morally, see, ethics and morals, when you don't have anything, these are things you think about. But when you are powerful, power corrupts, as Lord Acton said, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The more power you have, you can buy your own justice. If you think that the court system always renders the decision that is right, then you don't know much about the justice system. Because most of the time you'll get the best justice that you can afford. Well, What happens in a situation like Corinth is the people could make excuses for anything. No one was going to stand up to them because they were people of power. And this affected the church that was there in Corinth as well. There was a, a, a sense of one person being more valuable than other people, and they knew in Corinth what that meant. Now, Paul had been led by God to start the church in Corinth. He, he went to this great city after having been in Athens. He came to Corinth, and, and he preached the gospel. He started off by sharing in one of the synagogues there. And as he preached the gospel, people started getting saved, he met up with two people who, who had been, uh, you know, um, they were tent makers. They had a tent making business. They had come from Rome when the Jews got kicked out of Rome. They came there to Corinth and started off in, in business there. And so Priscilla and Aquila were their names and Paul went to work for them and started teaching in one of the synagogues by their house. Well, eventually, the guy who was in charge of that synagogue, his name was Crispus, he got saved. And so the synagogue turned into basically a church. Imagine that happening today, but that's what happened. And so Paul moved across town and latched onto another synagogue and began teaching there, teaching the Old Testament, but showing them how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment to that. Well, at this synagogue, things weren't going so well, and the guy who was in charge of that synagogue hauled him into the authorities, tried to get him in trouble with the Romans. And uh, interestingly, that guy is mentioned in verse 1, Sosthenes, our brother. Well, Sosthenes brought Paul up for charges with the Roman authorities, and in those days, and It'd be an interesting sort of thing if we did this today. I think it would do away with a lot of the frivolous lawsuits that are out there. If you sued someone and they found that your suit was baseless, then everyone got to beat you up before you left the courtroom. (laughs) I kind of like that. But that's how we find out about Sosthenes, is that he brought Paul into court and And the Roman judge said, what are you talking about? You know, let's have a little separation of church and state. Don't drag a guy into my court to argue about what he's teaching. Just deal with it. So all the spectators in the courtroom, which in those days, a lot of people would come to court because, hey, somebody might bring a frivolous lawsuit and you get to beat someone up. So they're all sitting there waiting, oh, this is going to be good. And so they knocked Sosthenes around a bit and... You know, dropped a few elbows on him and all, and, and uh, somehow Sosthenes ended up getting saved. Not sure if it was directly as a result of getting beat up in court, but <laughs> Paul addresses him. So uh, an amazing thing is Paul pastored that church in Corinth there for a year and a half. Uh, a good group of people rose up and began to walk with the Lord, and this church was a A church that God had really blessed, but at the same time, they definitely had their problems. Now, the main problem that Corinth had, and it's the problem that really this entire book addresses, is they were constantly at odds with each other and with other people. They were a divided people. Now, that happens when you're wealthy. As soon as you think that you're on top of things, you begin to compare yourself to other people. Look down your nose at them. You believe that your success is due to your prowess or your goodness. And sometimes you look at people who are less successful than you and you begin to fight with them and argue with them. That was definitely the case. Paul spends the first four chapters just talking about division. They had little groups that were opposed to each other. Well, we are of Paul, we are of Apollos, we are of Peter. We are of Christ, and we will see as we go through this chapter in, in the coming weeks that Paul addresses this basically for four chapters, the division that happens. The church was not only divided, though. They had a lot of big problems, the kind of problems that come from success. There was a guy that he deals with here in, in the fifth chapter who, who was living in an incestuous relationship with his um, probably his stepmother, and the church wasn't doing anything about it because, hey, this guy was a powerful guy. We can't afford to have him stop giving, so let's just act like it's okay. And Paul goes, hey, I heard what's going on, man. You've got to deal with this. You can't just ignore sin within the body. He goes on also and addresses problems like when, well, they were suing each other constantly. Christians suing Christians and He's going, that's ridiculous. That's so, it'd be better to lose than to spend all your time tied up in court with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. He also dealt with the, the fact that when they had communion, instead of celebrating the body and blood of the Lord in humility, they, would, they, they allowed you to bring your own stuff. So, hey, if you had a lot... Man, you could bring your own booze. You could bring your own food. You could be partying away. And so their communion services on the other end. Somebody who was poor or they were new and they didn't know you are supposed to bring stuff, they would just be sitting there. And as they celebrated the body and blood of our Lord, some people were doing without, other people were getting drunk out of their minds, just getting bombed. That was like their version of recovery ministry, to have communion more often. We can all drink and enjoy ourselves. I suppose it made it easy to invite your friends to church. <laughs> you know, hey, yeah, come on and get drunk at church. But Paul was going, it's not really the way it ought to be. Then they were all confused about spiritual gifts. They were, they were elevating some gifts over others, and it was just going crazy. You'd walk in, and there, people are just babbling in tongues really loud, and people are going, what is going on with this? and as they exercised the gifts there was no love at all and so paul addresses those things they were also confused about the resurrection of jesus christ and what kind of a body they were denying the resurrection there was that influence as well they were the people were there were a lot of people there who were questioning whether paul had any business being a real pastor and so they were attacking and criticizing him as well. So here you have all of these problems that are going on, and Paul addresses them. But it's a good thing for us to look at it. Be careful. Don't just think, man, they were really bad. They were really messed up. Because as Paul addresses them, he reveals to them who they really are. And as he does that, that lays the groundwork for him to be able to put back together things that they had broken, relationships that they had broken. And it's an interesting way to approach it, but the truth is whenever there is division, whenever there's fighting and quarreling, whenever there's sectarianism and and, criticism of people who are different than we are, it almost always comes out of an insecurity in who we are. And so in our study this morning, we will look at how Paul addresses these people, so rich in some ways, but so messed up in other ways. And what he does is he says, you guys have forgotten who you are, and I want to remind you of who you are. So beginning with verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Paul knew what he was called to be. God had called him to be an apostle. An apostle is simply one who is sent. Now, there were people who said, Paul, you're not an apostle. An apostle had to be there with Jesus. And so he had that criticism, but he knew that it was God who called him. It was God's will who said, Paul, you are someone I am sending. I have a job for you to do. So Paul doesn't hold back and apologize about the fact that this is his calling and this is who he is. And so he says, hey, I'm an apostle through the will of God. And Sosthenes, by the way, you guys remember Sosthenes? Remember when they beat him up and, you know, now he's here with me. Look what's happened. To the church of God, verse 2, which is at Corinth, the church of god which is at corinth to be the church of god it's the assembly of god's people the word church just means those who are called together or those who assemble he didn't just call them the church at corinth there were probably several groups there in corinth and they kind of some of them didn't like other groups and things like that but his address was, he said, you know, you guys are at Corinth, but you're the church of God. God owns you. He is the one who has called you. You are the assembly of his people. It's so important that we have that perspective, that we don't go to Calvary Chapel, Pacific Hills, that's our church, or this is Dave Rolfe's church, or It isn't at all. It's the church of God, and we're a part of the church of God. And we're not better than any other group or any other church. We're simply the church of God, and we happen to be here. We're not in Corinth or in a similar area, but we're right now where you're sitting is in Aliso Viejo. But the parking lot right over there is in Laguna Woods. The post office thinks that we're in Laguna Hills, All I know is we're the church of God, and that's what matters. We are His church. He has a right to tell us how to run His church. He wants to work through it, and we find our identity as we are members of the church of God, which is in Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Sanctified? Saints? Corinth? Again, the word Corinthian meant a dirt bag to people from the outside. They didn't say it to them because the people in Corinth were rich dirt bags. Which is the worst kind to deal with, by the way. Many of you worked for rich Corinthian dirt bags. But Paul, you know, I would think Paul would Tell them, you know what? You guys are no saints. And what you need is to be sanctified. Come on, you got immorality going on. You have greediness. You're offending each other all the time. You're drunk at communion for crying out loud. What you need to do is get sanctified. And that's what we would have a tendency to say. But Paul says, you guys are sanctified. And you are saints. To our way of thinking, we usually talk about sanctification as being that process in which we become better people. We get saved, and we call that justification, and now that we spend the rest of our life cleaning up our act, and we call that sanctification, and if we clean up our act enough, maybe we'll become like a saint. We'll become someone that other people elevate and lift up and say, wow, aren't you holy? Here's the problem with that. Sanctification, sainthood, it can't come by what you do because you just can't be good enough. And as soon as you try to sanctify yourself, in fact, you can live a life of walking with God and as soon as you settle in and go, man, I'm finally feeling sanctified. I'm finally seeing some progress. I I think of who I used to be and now I look who I am I'm doing pretty good there are some people who are about ready to elect me as a saint as soon as you start thinking that way what happens pride immediately sets in you begin to distance yourself from all of those unsanctified heathens and you fall into the greatest sin of all the sin of pride and once you do that it's all over forget sanctification. Forget growing in the Lord. Now, there is a process by which God works in our lives and helps us to grow and draws us closer to Him. But if we are going to be sanctified and set apart, it has to be because of God's grace. It can't be by anything else. And He says, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are sanctified and you're a saint. I'm Saint Dave. You guys are saints too. See, God, I don't know if you realize this, but He looks at you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, He looks at you and He thinks you're perfect. You go, come on. What is it? Does God have this great imagination? Or does He shrink His divine eyes enough and and pinched him almost close. So he can barely see an outline, and then he imagines us as being good. No. See, Jesus Christ died for your sins. And so, as the song that we sang, the last song that we sang during the offering, all of our stains are washed away. Hallelujah. What a great truth that is. Until you realize that you're sanctified and a saint. You'll never be able to live like one. And you'll never be able to, long, to get along with other people either. Because if you're looking at the outward manifestation of who you are and what you do, immediately you're going to be either discouraged or prideful. And you're going to compare yourself with others. And God would say, I want you to see yourself the way I see you. And if I say you're sanctified, you're sanctified. If I say you're a saint, you're a saint. Accept it. That is so important because we will never be able to get along with others until we are first secure in who we are, until we first know who we are in Jesus Christ. And then the obvious thing is, first I need to figure out that I'm a saint. But then, and in conjunction with that, I need to see you the way God sees you as well. And I'm not going to see you as a saint until I see me as a saint. But that's okay. Because if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, both are true. And so Paul's reminding them, he's building them up in a security that says, if you really know who you are, division's going to fall away. Sin and failure and all of the junk that ruins your life It'll go right down the drain if you could just see who you really are. See yourself as I see you. And so Paul says, you know, you're sanctified. You're called to be saints in the same way that God called me to be an apostle. I know that you are called. You've been chosen. You've been singled out by God to be a saint. But he goes on to say, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now, it would be an interesting study, and sometime you might want to meditate on this a little bit, but when you see that God has called you, that's always an interesting concept. The Bible teaches it clearly. God calls us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. But at the same time, we need to call on Him. There's a reciprocal relationship that happens, and Paul points it out here by using two forms of the same word. He says, you're called to be saints with everyone who in every place calls on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he said, you're called because God called you, but you're also called because you call on Him. Now, I would love to solve that, that dilemma for you, but I can't. It's a good one to think about, though. Don't ignore either side of our responsibility or God's sovereignty. But he's saying, okay, you guys are saints. and But look at the inclusiveness of the statement that he makes. Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Christ Jesus our Lord He's their Lord and he's our Lord, is what he's saying. See, for us to really understand who we are, we need to understand what we are a part of, what the church of God in Jesus Christ really is. And it's way bigger than our church. It's not just, boy, God is doing great things here in this building. The truth is God is doing amazing things all over the city and all over this county, and all over the state, and the country, and the world. And it's important for us to realize we're a part of that. See, if we don't realize that, if I just think, you know, where God's really working is in our church. And in some churches that are a lot like ours, you know, God's really working in the Calvary Chapel movement. Except for some of the guys, they're kind of off. But most of the Calvary guys who are kind of like us, or those who have some connection to Costa Mesa or whatever, you know, yeah, God's really working in us. Praise the Lord for all that God is doing in Calvary Chapel. You know what? I am much more interested in recognizing my part in the church of God, in the body of Christ, than I am in connecting with people who agree with me. And what Paul is saying is, Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone who has placed their faith in Him, they are our brothers and sisters. We are a part of them. They are a part of us. And that is so, you know, we can come here and go, wow, second service is pretty crowded today. That's great. Look at what God is doing. There's people sitting out in the overflow thing. And that is great. It's glorious. I thank God. But it's way better than that. Because see, there's a church right across the driveway over here that I can see right now. You can't. And people are coming to that church, and I see their parking lot is, is almost full. They don't like it when we park in their parking lot because they have people coming there to worship God. And I look at that church, and I go, it's cool because we're all a part of the church. I go a couple miles down the road. There's a church, Compass Bible Church, that meets in our old facility where we used to meet. God's going to have a lot of people there worshiping Him today, glorifying Him, studying His Word. A few more, uh, half a mile or so down the road, there's a church, New Song, uh, off further down Aliso Creek, and you'll find the uh, church, um, Coast Hills and other. In a, in a five-mile radius, there are so many churches where God is there because they're naming the name of Jesus. That should be our distinctive. That should be something that binds us together. We need, each of us need to understand that we are a part of the body of Christ. And we need to reach out and celebrate and appreciate what God is doing. I, I'm excited for what God is doing among all our missionaries, for instance. But I get so much more excited when I read about other missionaries that I've never heard of and what God is doing in them. I want to be a member of the body of Christ more than I want to be a member of our church. Here we are, and this is great, but to understand that we are connected to other people is a really important thing for us to grasp. That's why I often encourage people to support some ministries that aren't directly connected to us if you feel God leading you to do that. I'm also excited when I hear people in our church who are getting involved in parachurch ministries or who are involved in community Bible studies and things like that, that we don't control. See, I don't want to control who you are spiritually. I want to plug you in to the greater program of God, the body of Christ. And Paul was telling them, you guys, you're a part of something way bigger than you realize. And how encouraging it is when you see what you're a part of. And when you realize that you're a part of it, you're less likely to attack it. You're less likely to criticize it and put it down. Because it's not us and them. When it comes to people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just us. We are all in this together. And Paul reminds them of that. With all who in every place. Call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. We can't claim him as ours and not theirs. Now he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. That means that God blesses us even though we don't deserve it. It means that everything we get from God is free. It's not, well, if we're good enough, he'll forgive us. If we really live a good life, maybe we'll get to go to heaven. It's all grace. This is the only thing that can allow us to take our next breath even. You don't deserve anything good except that because God loves you, He just wants to give you things that you don't deserve. And that's His grace. And when we understand His grace, His peace comes along with it. That peace that we know we're okay with God, that peace that gives us a sense of it's taken care of. If you're all stressed, you don't have peace, you don't understand His grace. Now again, if you're, it goes both ways. If I'm going to receive His grace, I need to show His grace. If I'm going to be St. Dave, then you have to be St. whoever you are. We have to agree together on that because grace is something that is accepted as we draw together and accept it mutually. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he goes in in verse 4 and says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. (laughs) I'm not sure how it would feel for someone to write this to you, Imagine if someone said, you know, every time I think of you, I think of God's grace. Like, hey, wait a minute. But that's what Paul was saying. It's, It's real. It's honest. It's better than saying, every time I think of you, I think of all the things that you're doing wrong. When I think of Corinth, I think of the Corinthian reputation when I think of your church, I think of this open sin that's going on. I think of drunken communion services. I think of people who are struggling with believing in the resurrection. I think of people who are suing each other constantly. Paul didn't do that. He said, when I think of you, I think of God's grace. What a a great insight and a real gift to share with people that You remind me of God's grace. Now, you may not like that. You may not like to be a trophy of God's grace, but over the next couple of weeks as we go through this first chapter, you're going to figure out that that's what you are, a trophy of God's grace. God chose you because he wanted to show what he could do with someone like you. If you don't like it, pick another God, pick another religion, because that's the essence of Christianity. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. Verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by him. In all utterance, the word there is logos, and all knowledge, the word there is gnosis in the Greek. He said, you guys have everything you need. You're so rich. You are so blessed you probably don't know it because you wouldn't be striving so much if you realized how rich you are, if you realized how blessed that you are, but he said, you have everything. God has made you rich. You may live in a city like Corinth. Some of you may think, yep, there's the haves and the have-nots, and we all know which is which. Everyone in Corinth was either rich or poor, but he goes, you know what? You guys have all been enriched by God. He has given you everything that you need, enriched in everything, in all utterance and all knowledge. The word there, utterance, logos, it's a word from which we get the English word logic. It means, it's often translated word, but it means a lot more than word. That's why in John chapter one, Jesus is given the title, the logos. In the beginning was the, the Logos, the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Sometimes it's translated reasoning, as in logic, but usually there isn't a great translation for it. But gnosis is something that just means data, things that you've learned. When you combine the two together, he's saying you have the information that you need, And you have the ability to process that information in a way that turns into life, in a way that will allow you to benefit from all the blessings that are out there that come when people know how to live. And he goes, you're rich in that. You've been given the Logos, the Son of God, God in the flesh. The Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what you have and you are rich because of it. And that's why we can sing, Jesus you're my everything. He's all you need. He is embodied in him is all of the capacities possible to f- help us to figure out how to live life, to be successful, to practically live in a way that life was designed to be lived. And he says you've got all that. It's not something that you're lacking. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, he said, I've seen you change since you gave your life to Christ. You have a testimony. God, at one point, did some things through you, and it was undeniable. So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation or the apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ.